When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is John Ridley, and as always, I'm here with Matt Carey, and this is Doc Talk. Matt, how are you this afternoon? Great. Great to talk with you, John. It's great talking with you as always, and the conversation that we're having today. Listen, we've had people who are amazing. We've had great, fun conversations. I don't know that we've had a more fun conversation than with Sheila Nevins, who I know that you know and have known her work for so long. This, this is the first time I've had to speak with her, and she is amazing. And and even more amazing, at 84 years old, Matt, she has done what? She's directed her first film. She has, by some count, is the producer, executive producer of anywhere between 400 and 1,000 documentaries, <laughs> which is just unbelievable. I guess it depends on who's counting. But this, the ABC's a book banning. That is her directorial debut, co-directed. But Sheila is uh, both producer and director on it. Yeah, it, it's an extraordinary documentary. It's absolutely necessary in the times we're living in. And I, I don't know that there's anyone who could have extracted these conversations from some remarkable young people any better than Sheila did. It's a terrific conversation. And we're happy to share this with you on this week's episode of Doc Talk. Here's myself, Matt Carey, and Sheila Nevins. You've directed your first documentary, uh, and I want to make sure I get through. This is your first doc, the ABCs of, of book bannings. Yes, it's true. The genesis for this, and, and there's a clip in the film that's absolutely remarkable, and it was seeing a, a woman, Grace Lynn. Isn't she the best ever? Talk about this woman, a 100 years old, and why this and this moment and, and this clip is so phenomenal um, in, the, in the age that we're living in. I'm in a media where age is a really a curse. Uh, no one is going to hire me at this age, but they do because I sort of push my way down the door and somebody finds me, you know, sort of wailing somewhere and they're buying the brand. They're not buying me. Hmm. I'm old. The brand is kind of like, even though we make crap, we have Sheila and Evans. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I sort of clean up the brand. I'm not saying what brand. I'm saying a brand, any brand. Okay. So... Age is a pretty much a detriment, and I suffer the consequences of an aging woman in terms of ideas. Not that I can't think them, but that I'm, you know, in rooms with 40-year-olds, you know, and I feel out of place, which is kind of like why I like COVID, because when you're the size of a postage stamp, hmm. it's harder to look different than everybody else. But I did, when I met people in person, look different. I looked like their mother or their grandmother for that. As a matter of fact, when I got a job at MTV, um, Chris McCarthy, who was the head, the boss then, I said to him, why do you want to hire me? I could be your, you know, your mother. And then I thought, wait a second, how old are you? He said, like 45. I said, I could be your grandmother. And then I thought again, I said, I could be your great grandmother. And you know what he said? Your shows help me be gay. Mm. Even when I tell the story and I tell it, um, I get kind of moved about it. 
because I, I felt worthy and worthwhile at that point. And I saw Grace. I saw her on, I don't know, somebody's show or on TikTok. I don't even remember where I saw it. saw this woman fighting for books and the right to read and the First Amendment. And she was at a school board meeting. And I thought to myself, oof, she came up to, you know, status with a walker. And she walked into this place and she's like confronting book banning. And I, the people that I know that were confronting it were adults and went to Harvard Law School. And they were really smart and they were punching back and they were, you know, in their prime. And here was this woman talking about how detrimental book bank was to young people and how they had a right to learn and to know and to see difference. And I listened and she said, I'm a hundred years old. She said it in front of the meeting and I got like all choked up. And I, um, I thought, why am I so hard? I mean, cause I'm pretty selfish. Why am I so hard on myself if this woman out there can go fighting for something. I want to be with her. I want to be like her. I want to fight for her. And the best way I know how to fight is with the docu. So, you know, I was sitting in the room with Trish and I said to Trish, we actually talking about another project at the time. And I said, Trish, let's call her. Let's get her. Let's hold her. And I called my boss at MTV, Liza Pfefferman. I said, Liza, I want to do something on book banning. She said, okay. I said, I need to get this woman in Florida. I got to get her right away and not put her on any other shows. She has to belong to us. And we did it. In 24 hours, Trish was down there and Grace was on the phone giving me theories about life and a hmm. hundred uh, year old Grace theories about life and liberty and death and going on and fighting back. And I thought, you know, shit, what am I so scared of? I'm going to do what she did. I'm going to go make a film and I'm going to make a short one and an easy one, and I'm going to talk to the people that she's fighting for who are the children who are being deprived of the difference of the world we live in, who are being deprived of history and racism and sexual difference and color and atheism and many gods and no gods. And I'm going to make something that is a pictorial version of what Grace is talking about. And that was the genesis of it. You know, it wasn't like, it's as inspirational as what you talked about before, which was jumping out the window. <laughs> it came as quickly. So that's the story of the film. And I really didn't want to let go of it because it was philosophically a message to me and emotionally a message beyond grace into aging and into fight back. And the fact that there are no curves on punch and that I shouldn't always be apologizing for being older, trying to fix it and make it look younger. Um, you know, the biggest compliment a sales lady can tell you when you walk into a store is you look young in that. Now they have to say you look like young and you look thin in that. You know, now they're added, in other words. But, the, you know, that kind of thing really got to me. And Grace, Grace was out there fighting and she was driving and I was used to think when I got in my car, how much longer am I going to be able to drive and let people drive at my age? You know, there's Grace at 101 driving to the meeting, folding up her walker and, you know, climbing up the stairs. Come on, Sheila, wake up. So in a sense, yes, it's about book banning, but it's also about aging and it's also about the power to fight. And, uh, you know, men are allowed to fight a little longer or to be visible a little longer. There's a kind of wisdom in masculine aging, which isn't in feminine aging. And so, you know, 
I like it. I, I like I like her. I want to be close to her. I have no role models. She's my role model. So Sheila, the you know, we hear from Grace Lee in the film, Grace Lynn rather, but we also hear from these kids. I know. And man, they have wisdom and they're fourth graders. But you see, it's the same thing, isn't it? We don't listen to kids and we don't listen to old people. Hmm. We reprimand kids. We don't think they're philosophers and we don't think old people have philosophy that's worthwhile anymore. I mean, I don't know how old Seneca or I don't know how old these people were, but I'm just telling you in that time, they were not 80. So here was a 100-year-old woman and here's a 9-year-old or an 8-year-old child. And they are agreeing and they are saying the same thing. And that gives freedom to both of them to be heard, doesn't it? So it was interesting to me to bring the two together, to bring the old and the young, the discarded and the not listened to. The kids are very articulate, I think, about what, why they love books and what they think they would be missing. And they talk about going into like the school library and there's, <laughs> there's nothing on the shelves. It's been taken away. Nothing there. And she says so adorably, I hope they watch this. We're a bunch of 10-year-olds. You know, and Grace says, I'm 100. They're only separated by 90 years of living. And they're saying the same thing, and they're both fighting for it. Good, you know, good, good stuff. So that's why I got so involved in this, because I was really fighting for myself in a certain way as well. Anyway, she's coming to New York to be at a New York Public Library screening of the film and um, conversation. She's coming to New York. She's getting on a plane. She's 101 now. She's coming to New York fearlessly. Come on, guys. You know, one of the things, I, I, I think people talk about book banning, certainly now with Florida, we hear that. But there were so many things within this film, nuances of book banning. I didn't know that there were categories, restricted, challenged, banned, um, the number. But that all means that they're off the shelf. So they're kind of euphemistic categories that skirt the word banning because if it's restricted, it's pulled. And mm. if you want to see it, you have to get special permission. And your mother has to get special permission and the teacher has to give it to you. So you become a pariah. Uh, you know, banned is, is the next step, but it can take a while. So basically the shelves are not full. It's not free choice. They're not yeah. freedom of speech. Yeah. Pretty, pretty scary, isn't it? Well, it's very scary and it's quite scary. What I thought was really interesting in the film is, first of all, the, the breadth of books. Um, the ones about um, Rosa Parks that you would think, well, how, how innocuous, talking about an individual who happened to be a woman, who happened to be black, who is sitting, not standing, sitting for her rights. Um, books by Toni Morrison, Mouse, the graphic novel about the Holocaust. And again, to have children who talk about, well, if we hide this history, doesn't that allow for that history to re be repeated? There is a young girl who talks about in the book where she learned, you know, if a young person has to hide their orientation, and she says, and I'm paraphrasing just a bit, you know, if the world can't see all of this person, then are they even seeing half of this person? They're not even seeing it. Yeah. They're not even seeing half of this person. So how do you know who that person is? If a person can't express, we, we, we quote them very often in our conversations. What? One of the kids says something about, if you can't know 
the me, then the me, and the me, and then you don't know the who, and you don't know the me. So sometimes when we're caught, we say the me, the me, the me of me, the you of you, you, or the young woman who said, young girl who says, why, why, yeah. you know, and then at the end she says, why, you know, so we, we kind of have established that as part of our lunchroom conversation, you know, which is why, why? And how did you, I mean, how did you find these kids? And and you make a point in the film that they were given age-appropriate books. So these were not, you know, kids who were given things that they shouldn't read or works that uh, people may not understand that there are age-appropriate books that are about these subjects. But these kids, first they were all, I don't want to confirm that they were, they were in Florida. These these kids were in Florida. Not all, so, some, were, not all of them. some were in Florida and some were in the New York and the three, you know, New York, New Jersey kind of area they were around here uh yes some of the kids were from florida it's not man on the kid on the street we didn't just go up and say something and then put it on the air okay it was kid on the street kid on the street kid on the street kid on i'll use that kid on you know right so i can't tell you that every child was as wise and brilliant although they all felt in a similar way because it was clear that they were literary kids uh but but nonetheless it's edited, it's selected, but they feel the same way. So many kids feel that, you know, don't take that away from me. Yeah. Let me decide for myself. You know, let me know the world I'm growing up in. Don't take away the world. The surprising thing was that the words about being gay or LGBTQ or, you know, they, they understood these words. They understood what they meant. And then you say, well, how does a kid understand that? And then you realize this is part of our culture. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's, it's their, their grandpa or their daddy or their cousin or their uncle or somebody, you know, that, that, that the world is changing. People are admitting to characterizations and possibilities that didn't exist before. And these kids are picking it up. That's why they want to read. That's why they want to know more. It's part of their underground vocabulary, their familiarity with sexual difference that was so compelling to me at a very young age. And the book, you know, and Penguin Mates 3, I mean, come on. You ban that book, you're banning Central Park. You know, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> unbelievable. And that's why we tried to animate, to give the adults who was watching it, because it's really a film for adults in many ways, the experience of what the child was looking at you know, they weren't looking at fornication. It wasn't an R-rated book. It was a book about love. It was a book about an egg hatching and the child coming out of it having no place to go but two wonderful daddies. So, you know, what are you banning, love? It was interesting. I learned a lot. I really did learn a lot because I was not aware at what age books were being banned. I mean, just when you're reading a book and you're six or seven or eight, and then, of course, I always keep quoting this thing from South Pacific, which I never understood until I did this film, which was, you've got to be taught before it's too late, before you were six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. So if you think about those lyrics, not that, you know, I, I wish I was quoting Shakespeare, but I'm not, but it is Shakespearean in a certain way, in the sense that um, if you want to capture the mind of someone, brainwash them when they're young, yeah. restrict them when they're young. So it's kind of like, that's the time when anything is allowed in. 
and to curb that and to restrict that, take away those colors of life, is to really make life as you, the adult that has deprived them of it, see it with your gray and black colors or your light colors or your boring colors or your right wing colors. I'm going to get into trouble for this. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You have, you have talked about how all of us and, and all of our demographics and backgrounds need to be open-minded and, and need to um, be accepting of many things. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, you, you talked about what you learned in this, in this documentary, you know, facts and figures, ages uh, of, of uh, where book banning begins and things like that. Obviously, you've spent your career around documentaries, producing them, all that. But this is the first time you directed. I'm curious, just in general, your takeaway as a director. Um, well, it wasn't done with the wind. I mean, it, let's face it. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, Dr. Zhivago. I wasn't out in the snow in Russia. You know what I mean? Kids were <laughs> sitting in a chair and I talked to them. You know, but the old <laughs> adage, working with kids and animals... <laughs> I know what I wanted. I felt, and I graciously worked with people who were gracious enough to say to me at some point, you know, you didn't executive produce this. You basically, you, you directed this. I said, oh, interesting. You know, I've done it before, kind of, but never with such passion. And so, you know, Trish and Naz and the people I was working with, um, Marissa, they all said, no, no, you really did direct this. You really this was your, like, conceit. You, like, and I had to agree that it was slightly different from other things I had done in the sense that I was there as a ground digger. You know, I was digging from the earth up. And the animation and the, the combination of the two things, yeah, it was me. And I thought, you know, hey, someone's giving me a different credit. You know, and that was the first person who really picked it up. Nobody really picked it up. And I thought, you know, I could get away with it. Then the director's guild came after me, so I can get away with it. <laughs> okay, now you're going to get us in trouble. That's going to pay the fee, so it's okay. Uh, all right, no problem. Anyway, that's my story, as honestly as I can tell it. Well, Sheila, let's talk about that story. You know, you wrote a best-selling book, which you shared some of those stories among your your many. Extraordinary credits as being an author. You don't look your age in other fairy tales. Uh, you've won more Emmys than any other person, 32 of them, I believe, at last count. You've executive produced or produced over a 1,000 documentaries. Since this is a podcast about documentaries, how do you see, this is a big question, but the field of documentary evolving over time of the last 10, 20, 30 years? I mean, it used to be, Here's a documentary, you know, it's good for you, it's it's broccoli. You're not going to really like the taste, but trust us, it's good. Now it's it's mass entertainment. I mean, it's changed so remarkably. And that has a lot to do with you, by the way, but... I'm a competitive person. 
And when I got the job, my first job at HBO, it, we were afraid to use the word documentary because it was nobody watched documentary. So we used to call them docutainment. We invented <laughs> this word docutainment. And then uh, my background had been theater. I'd gone to the Yale Drama School. I'd majored in directing. And I felt, you know, wait a second, wait a second. Entertainment, docutainment, entertainment. Why am I making these docus about 1920, 1930, 1940, 1950? What was Hitler really like? What was the master? You know, I was making historical docus because I really didn't know what a docu was. But I didn't like the way we were getting scores then at HBO. They were called TSS total subscriber satisfaction. And they were not satisfied with my 1920, 1930, 1940 docus and my other stuff, but they needed to fill the schedule. This started in eight hours, HBO, then it was 12 hours, it was 16 hours, needed product, needed product. So I thought, why don't I take the ideas from narrative and make docus about those ideas? It's not like I was Einstein. I didn't invent E equals MC squared. I, bar- I borrowed it, okay? <laughs> so basically, I saw Bob and Ted and Carol and Alice or whatever with Natalie Wood, and they were all in the bed together in the promo, and I thought, swinging? Why don't I do a docu about swinging? Why is that off the limits? And the word is docutainment. But then I can't put it on in the afternoon. So what I'll do is I'll put that on at night. Then I saw crime. And it was kind of like interesting. There were a lot of crime and police shows at that time. We're talking about 30 some odd years ago. And I thought, "Mm." but I have to be a little more R-rated because I don't want to be like everybody else. I don't want this thing called HBO to look like everybody else. So we did autopsy, cut bodies open, and we we weighed livers on scales, you know? (laughs) Like I was, I used to smell of formaldehyde. I mean, that was, you know, my perfume of that time. And then I ran into Heidi Fleiss and I thought, Ooh, you know, what, what's so wrong? And they're not hurting kids. They're clean. They're in Las Vegas. It's legal. Um, you know, I'll go down and do Cat House. I'll do G-String Divas and I'll put those shows on. That's why I wanted to say it's appropriate when we did the kids, because it was age appropriate. It was after 11 o'clock. There was no streaming per se. So I did the attainment part of docu late. I did the nudge the world part of docu in the, in, in the regular slots, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 sometimes. And then we did the children's stuff like children's stuff, nine, 10, Saturday, Sunday, you know, whatever. So in other words, I had the whole world there. And I wasn't hurting anybody. And, and you know, it was like, whoa, you can do R-rated stuff and call it a docu. And that, I think, is the contribution, which was bringing the letter R to what was really, I would say, well, I don't think there's a letter for it, but I would say the top 5% of the population, the sort of intellectual. You know, what's wrong with the CIA? You know, have, you know was Hitler, uh, you know, a good artist, you know, all that kind of stuff. I did all the historical stuff and I realized it wasn't working. I realized the straight docu wasn't working, nudging the world in terms of popularity. It wasn't that they shouldn't be made and they should be made. And we should try to nudge the world in docus, but you really, in the main, when you make those docus, you're talking in a closet, you're talking to yourself. And the point really was, how do you make those middle of the those, those docus that are nudging the world, how do you make them watchable? 
because it's easy to pick tainment and it's easy to change the world if 20 people are watching who already agree with you. And children are the most delightful documents in the world to make because there's music and animation and make-believe. But, you know, have docus really changed? Have the ones that nudge the world really changed? Or have we simply gone back to the word attainment and made them more entertaining and done what HBO did in the evening, which was slightly R-rated, you know, Dahmer can cut you up in little pieces, everyone can watch it ostensibly to stop all the Dahmers of the world, or are they really lusting after what he's doing? You know, who the who knows? But whatever it is, you can tell from TSS, Total Subscriber Satisfaction, that those people are watching it. And when HBO was popular enough and switched into uh, Nielsen, it was very hard then to figure out the number thing in the same way. You know, it wasn't as clear uh, because this was the box of HBO subscribers. You weren't matching it against anything else because it was their own rating system. So you could rate yourself more carefully than you could with a Nielsen, which is comparative. So, you know, I, I sort of learned by numbers. You know, I hate to say that. I'd like to think I was like, you know, discovered something. But I just took, you know, Jaws did well. I did Sharks. Mm. You know, you name the movie. I stole from fiction to fact. So now that, you know, the big discussion about whether there should be reenactment in docus. Well, I mean, let's face it. If there hadn't been reenactments, I don't think there would have been the popularity of the docus we did on HBO because I took them from fiction. I took the ideas from movies. I took them from plays, plays about a mother who's dying. She, you know, maybe I should do one of those. You know, maybe I should really do death. Maybe I'm, I'm leaving that out of the mix. The play is working. Now, that's a different kind of audience, but maybe I can generalize the loss of someone you love and make it a nudge the world kind of document in the middle of the day. Not, not the middle of the day, but I mean eight o'clock. So, you know, that I, I really learned from screening, watching other people's stuff, borrowing ideas, constantly borrowing ideas from, from fiction. Because fiction is based on fact. So why can't mm. fact take some mm. fiction? I mean, there's one, you know, a few stories in life, right? How many are there? You lose, you gain, you love, you die, you know? Mm. So, but within those, you can maneuver. So I was good at maneuvering. I think I'm still like that. I'll ask Grace. She'll tell me. <laughs> so let me ask you this then. If if there is right now in, in the business, as you say, this uh, struggle between the docu and the entertainment, and I don't want to say entertainment is winning, as you say, part of it is you got to get people to watch in all regard, but moving away from, hey, I'm doing this, but I'm doing this for myself or whatever. It, is there a space or will there be a space for documentaries that maybe are a little more micro-targeted or if it's all about the TSS or the algorithm or the true crime, at some point, and, and Matt and I have talked and are talking to documentary filmmakers who make really, I saw a film that really opened my perspective and spoke to me in a way that was very effective, but it's still looking for distribution. Is there room for all of this um, as the entertainment industry shifts, or is it likely to be more algorithm TSS-driven? It's a good question. Um, the nice thing about docus being unpopular was that they were cheap, hmm. and you could run them, and you didn't really chase 
awards or ratings. Now the chase has invaded the docu area. You know, it's got to win a prize. It's got to get an audience. It's tough to buy something for $2 million that, you know, 30,000 people are going to watch. Because if you can buy something for, you know, $2 million that a couple of million people are going to watch, it's a business. So what are you going to do? I, I don't know the answer, really. I know that I've enjoyed all kinds of that. Ones that are about yourselves, about things you want to change in the world. But I have always been horrified and saddened by the fact that I was talking to myself mm. and that somehow it wasn't going where you should go. I mean, occasionally you do a document, you get a letter from someone, then they say, I never thought of that before. I will never be unkind. You know, that's when you used to get letters. Now you get, you know, why did you make that? Who did think you are? You know, how dare you talk about book banning? You know, manipulated the children, you know, whatever. But um, I don't know the answer to that. It's a very commercial world. Money yeah. is what matters. Where, where the trickle-down theory didn't work. Uh, can, can we pull out one happy thought to, to, to end on? I'm... <laughs> <laughs> We were slightly managing towards we've inspired each other and then it ended on life is, is tough all the way around. Yeah. We're able to say still what we think. Hmm. And that we have to really hold on to. And the technology is so cheap now that we can make what we envision. Those are great gifts. You know, I once said to someone who painted something very beautiful uh, and it was you know sold for a lot of money. I said, how much did it cost you to paint it? And she said, very simply, the brush was about $17 and the paints I had, and it was an old frame. And I said, and you sold it for $140,000? And she said, that's American. What am I going to tell you? Happy thought for her. She didn't paint it for the $140,000. She painted it because she was inspired by it, and that's happy. Hmm. And the fact that she made a lot of money on it I don't know. That's art. That's business. Ms. Nevins, thank you so much. Thank you both. Matt, I, again, I think Sheila is one of the most interesting people we had the chance to talk to. Unfortunately, I, actually, I think in the conversation, she asked us to edit a lot of things out. I would have kept it all. <laughs> we, we try to keep the shows tight, but we had conversations about life, death, and Mishima. And I got to be honest with you, I think those are the three subjects that are, are, are maybe floating through my head constantly during the day, life, death, and Mishima. It, it was a phenomenal conversation. She's so candid and really has an original take on life. And it really gives one a glimpse, I think, into why she's been so successful for so many decades uh, for a long time, of course, at HBO Documentary Films, and then more recently at MTV Documentary Films. But she's got an original mind. She says she claims that she's not an intellectual, but yeah. whether she is or not, she's certainly very smart and a really interesting, fascinating woman to speak with. Yeah, I will also say, you know, she was very self-effacing about her age. But to me, anyone at any age who can look at other demographics and say, hey, these are the stories that they want to see, they want to hear, they want to be aware of. As you say, that's an astute individual. Um, you know what, Matt? Speaking of astute individuals, we on our next episode, we have three 
incredibly astute individuals. Another uh, amazingly decorated director, Amy Schatz, is going to be on, along with executive producer Mike Jackson. And, and another gentleman who I hope in a few years will find some success doing something. Um, John Legend, are you familiar with this dude? Yes, the <laughs> EGOT winner. I was mentioning to you, I happened to be in the press room when he won his Emmy completing the EGOT, the rare, not quite so rare anymore, but still very, very impressive feat of the EGOT sweep. Yeah, he... He's um, incredibly accomplished, incredibly intelligent, and according to my wife, has some of the best skin working today. So, um, you know, <laughs> a, a, a plus side to the job. I, 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 my wife will now pay attention to Doc Talk because um, on a podcast, we have the guy with the best skin in the world. But we're talking with them next week about their new documentary, which is, you talk about a film that we need at this time. Uh, stand Up and Shout, Songs from a Philly High School. It's uplifting. It's beautiful. Um, of course, something with John Legend. There's music involved, but it really is similar to, to Sheila's in some way. It's reminding us that young people have a lot of answers that those of us, uh, you know, who are, are aging out in society, it, it wouldn't hurt us to listen to folks um, that are younger and, and in some ways a little savvier. And listening next week, it's going to involve music, it's going to involve some singing, and it's going to involve, again, some really, really terrific conversations. And as always, I'll be with you, my partner, Matt Carey. It's, it's always a pleasure. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a great episode. Phenomenal episode. That's next week. Stand up and shout songs from a Philly high school on Doc Talk. For Matt Carey and myself, John Ridley, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you again. Mm-hmm.